Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Here's a headline I'm pretty sure you have not read, um, unless you live in Canada, which greetings to those of you uh, on the north side of the border today. Um, Canada, like the United States, probably, you know, every other developed country has, you know, a top doctor, has a national uh, health advisor. So she is she's called the chief public health officer of Canada. Her name is Dr. Teresa Tam. And yesterday she made headlines because of her recommendations, and her recommendations reveal what I can only describe as a massive worldview divide. So if your country has to be told um, that, uh, that having sex with people outside your own household puts you at risk for the coronavirus, and so to avoid that, you should um, not maybe, maybe you should avoid having sex with people outside of your household, um, and or Uh, Certainly wear a mask to protect yourself uh, and make safe decisions about such things. Um, She's recommending that you have no close contact like kissing. Now, I I don't I'm not and I'm not an expert on sex, but I am married. And um, let me just tell you, uh, I, I there is a massive worldview divide going on here. Um, There's a complete misunderstanding of the sanctity of sex and its right relationship. um, And in fact, if uh, if you recognize, as she says, that risks increase for partners engaging with people outside their household, well, that would literally never happen if we were committed to fidelity in marriage between one man and one woman and chastity and singleness. The, the challenge is we actually have recent research here in the United States from Pew. Um, if you could check this out at, at PewResearch.org. This is an August 31 article. Here's the headline. Half of U.S. Christians, half of U.S. Christians, let me say that again, half of U.S. Christians say casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. So, uh, you know, where we might at first blush want to laugh that across our northern border in Canada, their uh, their national um, director of health is telling people to uh, to wear a mask while having sex and avoid kissing. Um, uh, We got problems. We got worldview issues related to the sanctity of sex, its rightful place in our uh, in our relationships. And if half of Christians are not committed to fidelity in marriage between one man and one woman or chastity by its classical definition in singleness, um, I got to tell you, we got bigger problems than um, laughing at the way that somebody might characterize uh, the ways in which in-person sexual encounters could be uh, accomplished in in ways to avoid the coronavirus. So um, I'm going to lift it up as a pray the news headline today. I'm also going to lift it up as something we have to start talking about. God created us male and female on purpose and for a purpose. And part of that 
is the gift of sex, the good gift of sex between one man and one woman in the context of a sanctified marriage. So I'll defend my marriage bed today. You defend yours. um, And let's be lifting up the truth in relationship to this. All right. Up next, Peter Kapsner. He and I have got, oh, gosh, we've got other stories to talk about. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Peter Kapsner is back to straighten us out. I think he's using our show this morning uh, <laughs> simply to prepare himself to host for Bill Arnold this afternoon. So you can actually tune in later today to the Faith Radio Network, 4 to 6 p.m. Central. Today and tomorrow, Dr. Peter Kapsner will be hosting for Bill Arnold. Yeah, clearly. That's kind of exciting. It is, yeah. I, I was actually, Are you just using us as like the one? I am, yeah. This is rough draft mm-hmm. time, actually. I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to give you guys my best stuff this morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now we have to. Now you and I have to pivot to what is maybe one of the most tragic headlines that I have read recently. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is horrendous. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read the headline portion of this, and then I'm just gonna um, let you comment. Mm. So this is in the Detroit Free Press. A Detroit man. The headline is: Detroit man missing since March, found dead in the basement of the center caring for him. So after more than five months, the body of 38-year-old Detroit man um, who disappeared has been found. It turned out he never left the East Side Assisted Living Center that reported him missing. He died in the basement. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Carmen, when you shared this headline with me, I think it, my mind went a lot of different places. But but among the places that it went was some of the conversations you and I have had over the years about the value of human life and, and the commodification of human life. And, and just, again, that we don't see each other as these beautiful image bearers that may be fractured and broken, but but still coming from the hand of God. So there's this innate beauty that that is part of what is the fabric of who we are and how broken that can become in such a variety of ways. And it I know our country is in a really tough spot related to just, you know, that phrase, however you want to start it, but but lives matter, right? I mean, it could be Black Lives Matter. I know some people are saying all lives matter. I don't want to get into all of the politics of that that situation, but I had an opportunity in the last uh, few weeks or so that led to a sermon last weekend that, that sometimes when I've done sermons in the past, it's it's things that I've thought about a bit or I've had a chance to teach in the classroom. So it's pretty easy to repurpose that for the pulpit, but but the idea of justice and the idea of of lives mattering was a relatively new study for me over the last uh, couple of months. And and one of the things that uh, was revealed in that study, and, and speaking to somebody who knew more about the ancient languages and the biblical texts than I do, is that that there is a bit of a difference between kingdom justice and American justice, as it were. And, and, and kingdom justice goes beyond the idea of fairness, which we need to have, and it goes beyond the idea of social opportunity that we need to have. What what kingdom justice is, is it is a desire birthed out of love for the reconciliation and the restoration of all things between us and God and us and one another. And, and when I say that, I mean, th- then kingdom justice becomes some, something so much bigger than the idea of fairness. Though, again, we need to have fairness. What it means is that when these lives in that headline that you just described um, are, are not mattering on some level or somebody is in pain and suffering and broken on some kind of level, 
uh, what kingdom justice does, it's actually the same word as kingdom righteousness. And, and what it does is it seeks the restoration and reconciliation of all things. And, and the church really has an opportunity um, to maybe distance, distance itself from different political platforms because it never goes well for the church to be involved in a given political platform. But the church really has an, uh, an opportunity to say, you know what, um, these lives matter because they come from the hand of God. And, and, and we are about the restoration and reconciliation of all things. And this is just another one of what was really hard to read about ways in which we treat one another as human beings, that there just isn't that evidence of that restoration of one another. And we don't have to go out and do big things about it, but simply just to, to start cultivating the kind of spirit where we ask Jesus to come uh, into the formational places in our life and say, can you give me your eyes, Jesus, because you wept over Jerusalem and you weep over people that are broken and hurting and suffering. Can you give us your eyes to weep over people too, so that maybe there would have been somebody in this context who would have known this man and, and who would have been able to intercede in a restoring kind of way? That's an example of kingdom justice. It didn't have to do with fairness uh, or, or anything. It had to do with we will walk and restore everywhere we go. Carmen, it's what Jesus did. When, when you read his story in the Gospels, everywhere he went, things were being set right. Uh, he, he was the Aslan figure of Narnia, right? Every, everywhere Aslan showed up, um, the winter was thawing and spring would break and, and everything would be set right. And, and Jesus has called us to do that same thing. We really have an opportunity because I don't think our country is going to figure out how to do this well, but the church really could. Again, um, it's it's such a tragic headline. It's such a tragic story. Um, and there's certainly going to be, you know, an investigation and uh, I'm sure, you know, accusations. You know, part of the part of the challenge here um, is that here is a person who is young. He's big, uh, six, six foot one guy, um, mental health issues, no physical issues. Right. Um, and so. You know, I guess he theoretically could have walked out the front door and down the street. And um, and that's why they made this assumption that when he was missing, he was not in the building. But we're not talking about a, a, a massive facility. I mean, if you look at pictures online, it's it's like a residential house. I mean, in a residential neighborhood, the idea that a person could die in the basement right. of a house and no one know it for this number of months. That is that is frankly unbelievable to me. It is like kind of, I, I, yeah. I it, it 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 there's parts of the story that I'm like how does this happen in America how does this happen to a guy who has a family they're they're you know they're quoted in the story how does this happen in a facility um, where you know there's ugh, anyway I, yeah. it's it's so troubling it's so troubling and and I guess I just think about the one lost sheep and I'm like how how is it that everybody did not mobilize when this guy went missing and everybody went to look for the one who was lost like how is that possible and it's because his life was not of great value to anyone yeah. to anyone I think you just nail you. You give me chills when you talk about going after the Juan Carmen because that is the heartbeat of God. And and I think um, we have such an opportunity as we were just saying. So let me see this world the way that you see it, God. And and I, I think if we did that, and if we took on that kind of mindset and that kind of spirit, that really does come from His Spirit that dwells among us. We will begin to see people will not be overlooked in these ways, at least to the extent that they currently are. And and this really is where we have an opportunity to shine light in a different way. Can you imagine if the story was different? 
and, and some church or some community of people knew this man and knew where he was. And they said, you know, he was at risk of all of what happened, but we were able to intercede and, and walk in restoration and reconciliation. I, you know, I know it sounds like, gosh, how do we even begin to do it? I think it just begins with prayer and begins with saying, help me see the world. It's amazing to me the times in my life when I've asked God to to see the world the way that he sees it, just all of a sudden what begins to come in your path. And, and I just think that opportunity exists and, and we have to take it. All right, uh, Peter Kapsner and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, a completely different topic. Yeah, I, I don't even know how to tee this one up. There are now divinity consultants designing sacred rituals for corporations because people disconnected from their workplaces have lost their religious rhythm somehow. I know, it's bananas, but it's in the New York Times, and it's apparently all over the country. So Peter and I are talking about it next. We're going down. I read this in uh, in the New York Times in the front page of the business section on Sunday, and I thought to myself, Peter Kapsner and I, <laughs> I don't know need how to you talk wrote me this into this Thursday. stuff. Yeah, I don't know how you do it. And so, because it's behind a paywall um, at the New York Times, <clears throat> I'm going to actually read some quotes from this as Peter and I discuss it. The headline is "Doing God's Work." God is capitalized. Um, that's that is not insignificant here. Doing God's work, divinity consultants are on a mission to usher in soul-centered corporate rituals. I'd like for you to just respond to the headline. Peter. Oh man, I, I mean, just even digging in a little bit though. Besides the headline, is that not only do these divinity consultants have apparently what's a pretty cushy gig, but they used to be more like office decorators, like you know, consultants to come in and design your office. And I think they saw an opportunity, as capitalists might, uh, to to sort of exploit the office situation, and they became divinity consultants. And so, for people who are hungry, right, for anything that would bring them some sort of sense of meaning in their life, you can hire these people. You know, Carmen, I think you've missed your calling on this one. <laughs> okay, be careful. Be careful. Okay, because they do have seminary degrees, which I have. Right. Some of, of them have business degrees, which I have. And um, and what they are doing is they are entering into relationships with these uh, with these offices, with these corporate environments. And because apparently a lot of corporate workers feel that the language here is adrift because those ri- rhythms, which apparently they regarded as somewhat religious, uh, those rhythms of of going into the office and all of the rhythms of being in that environment together, all of those are lost and they feel like they are adrift. And so these divinity consultants are now creating and crafting, quote, soul-centered corporate rituals. Um, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I think I'm a little bit surprised that a secular culture isn't isn't raising its eyebrows and saying, um, we don't need divinity consultants and we don't need, you know, sort of a God mission in our place of work. I also think on the other side, Peter, um, this this article just all by itself is the only defense any Christian owned company ever needs t- defending the fact that they have a chaplain. Yeah, this uh, is it. This yeah. is it. All they ever need is this. They trot this out and they say, hey, if secular corporations can have divinity consultants that are creating, you know, soul-centered religious rituals for secular people, I'm a Christian. I'm providing a chaplain within my company, and and this is your divinity consultant. Yeah, you're 100% right because they are not they're not trying to hide anything. I mean, they're not mincing words here. It's exactly what you just said, where they where they are attempting to help 
people's sort of spiritual energy or spiritual journey or come to some measure of peace because, like you said, people are, were feeling terribly adrift because the rhythms of their lives had been terribly uh, disrupted as well. And, you know, I, I think back, my father has owned a company for the better part of 40 plus years, and he had somebody on staff that did have a job title. But it was amazing to me as sort of word got out among the company that this person's door was also open. And he was a, a longtime pastor, longtime missionary. He did have an actual business role. But you can't imagine the number of people in my father's company that would go into his office and they would end up talking about every other manner of things. I mean, this is not new that people are hurting and in need of guidance. But I think what is new is that there is, um, I don't want to say exploitation necessarily, but there is that demand for meaning that I think so many people feel, understandably, is now being met through these divinity consultants that really, in, instead of inviting you into a bigger story and a bigger journey and, and uh, a redemptive work of God and, and to have a purpose in your life that is bigger than yourselves, they're coming in and helping them try to find meaning through things like, well, we'll celebrate when you get your in, uh, Instagram account set up. Ce- celebrate when you get your .com set up. And, and these little sort of uh, events that happen in the business, they're, they're trying to get them to see, see, this is really important in your life. And I think that's the most disturbing part of this for me, Carmen, is that what people are celebrating and what they're looking to, to find meaning. And I've thought this for, for a while is that you can spend 30, 40, 50, 60 years, right. in some sort of job or vocation, and you get into the rituals and rhythms of that job and you wake up one day and you're 75 years old and think, gosh, what did I do with my life? And and I, I found meaning in stuff that actually at the end of the day, though important and we should do our work well and have our vocations well, at the end of the day, there's a bigger story in which we participate. And, and it, it, these divinity consultants are enabling that so people can find a new sense of peace so they can carry on their own personal story as a part of participating in God's bigger story. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, I don't know what I would do if um, if I thought that there was some spiritual significance to reaching a certain milestone on social media in terms of followers. Like, right, right, right. That is not disciple making. Um, my friend anniversary with somebody on Facebook is not a that is not a religious ritual. That's just but I think that, that it does point to the reality that there's a spiritual hunger inside every single person. And um and people are filling that. One of the quotes in here that that caught my attention was actually uh, this author, Tara Isabel Burton, who apparently is the author of a book entitled Strange Rites, New Religion, New Religions for a Godless World. Well, mm. none of these religions are new. They're, you know, they're all pagan. So they're all really old. For sure. Um, but she talks about this unbundling of ritual and spirituality and theology. So the New York Times says it this way. In the unbundled world, people pick what they want from different faiths and incorporate them into their lives. A little Buddhism here, a little Kabbalah here. I don't know what that is. Uh, there's consumer-driven religiosity. Um, so this is syncretism. It is. This is just basic syncretism. It, it, it absolutely is. And when you when you talk about what the phenomenon is there, it's interesting because in, we just started having class here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, and I had my first relationships class with uh, about 15 students in the room uh, this last Tuesday. And we talked about the idea that um, you've been growing up in an environment where it is on you to determine what is best for you. And and you will cobble together different practices and different rhythms. And, and uh, we talked about the idea how rhythms and rituals and stories hold us together when they're corporate ri- uh, rhythms and rituals and stories. But, but right now, an individual 
isn't necessarily experiencing some of that. It's, it's part of the power of the Christian community is that we experience something bigger together all together. And so I asked my class, Cameron, I said, how many of you are feeling lonely, even though uh, in many ways you are so connected to one another in terms of social media and in other mechanisms? And the entire room was saying, we absolutely feel lonely right now. And I, it kind of took my breath away when a young woman began to share with the rest of her peers in class some things that were going on in her own life as we are talking about loneliness and she got done and she said these words, she said, this actually felt like a therapy session. And, and we talked about that and talked about how even some, some other places in the world when Hallie and I have traveled over time, that they, they're a little incredulous at how much we need therapists in America, not because therapists are bad, but simply because they have to replace the community in which we can walk and find ourselves and find that sense of meaning and purpose and hope. She experienced that in in this class a couple of days ago, and I watched. It was really interesting. People are so hungry, and and they really need some meaning. All right, there's a lot here. Um, Peter, you and I are out of time, so we're going to have to leave it right there. Um, What God wants is not some ritualistic attention. God actually wants a relationship with you. He's not interested in you going through the motions of feast days or worship services. Actually, the prophets cover that. What God really wants is to be known by those whom he already fully knows. So that's you. He wants you. And so uh, he doesn't really want a formulaic ritual practice. He wants you. And uh, and he's offering himself to you in a restored relationship through Jesus Christ. Um, We would love for you to... Uh, interact with us on that topic. You can do so at MyFaithRadio.com. Peter, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's always great to be with you guys, always. Hey, blessings as you host Bill's show this afternoon. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. All right, we'll be right back. All right, let me just go ahead and say uh, this next conversation is going to be upsetting to some of you because we're going to actually talk about the ways in which we as white Christians tend to resist conversations um, about racial systems, racialization, white supremacy. Yep, I said it out loud. We're going to talk with uh, Daniel Hill about his new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems That Divide Us. We need help, and he's here to offer it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So I've been hearing from uh, listeners lately. Here's a uh, here's a listener testimony. Thank you so much for bringing us out of ourselves and helping us pray for others who are hurting. Um, another listener who says, "Hey, I appreciate how you say things, and the way and and the things you address." Uh, particularly this morning, uh, it was encouraging. It was life giving. It was enriching. I'm so grateful. Um, so. People are impacted by what happens here, not just during this program, but during all of the programs that are broadcast by the Faith Radio Network. And this is listener-supported radio. So if you're in a position to share out of the abundance of your resources with us in order that we might continue to do what we do every day, but also to advance the cause of Christ in this generation, we invite you to give. You can give online securely every single day at MyFaithRadio.com. And we've got uh, a share campaign it's, it's the time in which we share, we suspend our regular programming. We share with you listener testimonies like the ones I just read. And we invite you then to share with us. 
And so share is coming up. Be praying with us and for us in advance of that. And uh, if you're in a position to do so, go ahead and give a gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. When disaster strikes, the human spirit responds by reaching out to help those afflicted. People stand in line to give blood. Rescue teams work for endless hours. But the most essential effort is accomplished by another valiant team. Their task? To gird the world with prayer. For the most part, we don't even know their names. Such is the case of someone who prayed on a day long ago. He went to Jesus on behalf of a friend who was sick. No one was more vital than the one who went to Jesus. John writes, So Mary and Martha sent someone to tell Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Someone went to Jesus on behalf of Lazarus. And because someone went, Jesus responded. Will you be someone for someone? This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, Daniel Hill. Among other things, Daniel is the author of a new book entitled White Lies. He's also the author of White Awake, which you may have already read. Uh, he's author of 1010, Life to the Fullest. He's the founder and, founder and senior pastor of River City Community Church uh, in West Humboldt Park in Chicago. Uh, Daniel, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's such a joy to be with you. Well, it's a, it's a privilege to have you with us. Um, and let's just go ahead and say you and I are going to have a conversation that is hard for white Christians to have. It's going to be particularly hard for some of um, my listeners to to hear and absorb because, um, wow, the resistance that you talk about uh, in the early parts mm-hmm. of the book is a resistance mm-hmm. that I'm very familiar with because I hear from listeners anytime I platform a conversation um, about, well, let me just go ahead and say it, white supremacy. Mm. Yep. Right. So I can, I can, I hear in, uh, I hear in that, that you, you know, the reality of which I speak. So let's, let's just jump right in and okay. let's talk about what's behind this conversation. White lies is a, uh, is a provocative title, nine ways to expose and re- resist the racial systems that divide us. Um, so let's begin where you begin. Tell us about parasites and and how white supremacy is a parasite. Yeah, well, you, you talk about the title being provocative, which it probably is, but that's some of what's backwards for us, right? Um, the, the notion of lies being dangerous and truth being the way out should never be a provocative idea for Christians, right? That's kind of the core of what we believe. And so um, uh, this the, 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 the whole idea behind this is that the way race works, the system of race, which you know, I'm not talking about how God created us. That's 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 a different kind of thing. Race is this thing created by human beings um, that really had evil intentions. And behind race is this lie that says some people are more superior and some people are more inferior. And so one of the more prominent theologians, Dr. Willie uh, Jennings, calls it a parasite. It's this lie that tries to attach itself to the truth of Christianity. And a parasite, of course, is a nasty little organism that can't survive on its own. It needs a host to attach itself to. And so we're just in this kind of peculiar time where there's these lies that are very dangerous, but the way the lie tries to stay alive is by attaching itself to the truth of Christianity. And that creates a bit of a conundrum if you're not kind of 
alert to looking for the way that that lie attaches itself to our beloved faith. So one of the things that you're you're really uh, seeking to help us do is identify those things, to see those right. lies so that um, so that we can pause and think about them and consider them and evaluate them. So uh, so talk with us about that process. Yeah, um, you know, it's 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 funny. You see how c- culturally conditioned certain topics are and other ones aren't when 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 you're in faith spaces that care deeply about pro-life, um, as I do, um, it's a it's actually the very same process what I'm suggesting, right? There's this sense that even if it's not articulated as clearly as uh, a pro-life advocate would uh, would say it aloud, I, I think this rationale is what would match, that there's this lie that suggests um, a, a newborn life is not valuable and that that lie leads to the possibility of that baby being killed. And because there's a lie around that and a truth about who God has made that baby to be, there's this requirement really for us to act on behalf of that and really, the system of race is built on the same ideology. It's a lie that says um, certain people groups are less valuable. Um, they don't matter to God at the same level that other groups are superior and matter more to God. And then there's these systems organized around that. And it's just this ongoing um, horrible dilemma that results not only in uh, outcomes that, that are less than equal for people, but oftentimes in actual physical death. And so it's 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 trying to train up Christians to realize this is a profoundly spiritual Jesus issue. These lies of race that discredit certain groups of people and um, position society to um, scorn them and uh, respond in a way that's less than what God would would want for that. Uh, yes, it's kind of exactly what you said, Carmen. It's, it's training us to see the lies that are behind that and to speak truth to that and then act in alignment with that truth in the same way that we would with other arenas of our life. So it feels like before we um, before we can get very far, we have to deal with a term that when when we use it, um, many white Christians are preconditioned to mm-hmm. hear it in a very specific way and therefore listen to nothing that follows. And that term is white mm-hmm. supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you help us yeah. understand how you're using the term? Um, and and how we ought to understand it differently than um, than the way, you know, it, it's not just about the most extreme evidences of right. it. It's a there's a right. there's a much bigger thing going on here. Right. Yeah, I think it's probably to your point, Carmen. It's probably as helpful to talk about the ways we use it incorrectly. Um, so for most of us, when we hear white supremacy, we to your point, we think of the most violent expressions of it. You know, we think of historic usage of the KKK, or we think of actual literal white supremacist hate groups, or we think of a Dylan Roof who, you know, killed the black worshipers, you know, uh, in a church, you know, we, we think of somebody who espouses evil ideology, which those can be fringe extreme forms of it, but that's not what the term is describing. The other reason that we tend to distance ourselves in such an emotional way from it is it just sounds like a horrible word. It sounds like it's describing somebody who does these awful, horrible things to other human beings. And I, really, none of us in our right mind would ever think of ourselves as even being in the same neighborhood of white supremacy. So we do tend to shut it down pretty quick. But when you actually look up the definition, you know, basically according to anybody, it's not actually even describing a set of behaviors. It's an ideology. It's just simply an ideology that says there is a supremacy. There's a superiority attached with a certain group of people. Um, and it really is no more complicated than that. It's this ideology that says there's superiority or supremacy 
attached to um, being white. And then it says anybody who's not white is less supreme, less superior. Now, that might be something we reject, but it's important to understand that that's an ideology that organizes a lot of things in society. And honestly, from a Christian perspective, it should be an alarming term because the foundation of our faith is, <laughs> I think of Colossians 1, that, that wonderful worship hymn from the Apostle Paul who says, you know, Christ is the image of the invisible God that's, you know, reconciling all things to himself, heaven on earth, you know, seen and unseen. Uh, but it says that his purposes, the purposes of the, of the of the Christ is that he'd have supremacy over all things, right? So anything, we, we should know this, we should be conditioned as Christian that anything that declares itself as vying with Christ to have supremacy over all things is a fundamental threat, not only to our life, but to actually the kingdom of God itself, to the very person of Jesus. And so this ideology of white supremacy um, in its very origins and its very stated goal is to buy with Jesus Christ for supremacy of all things. And so if it's an, if it's a term we immediately distance ourselves from or that we don't feel like we understand very well, I, I would suggest we should ask ourselves, do I actually even have a sense of the way this thing is vying with Jesus for supremacy over all things? Because if I'm following Jesus, I should probably have a pretty good sense of that which is vying for supremacy with him over all things in society. I'm talking with Daniel Hill. He is the author of White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We need a strong God. Yeah. We need the Continue my conversation with Daniel Hill. We're talking about his new book, White Lies. If you haven't read the book that comes before this, White Awake, we might uh, encourage you to do that. If um, if you're interested in one of the copies that we have here in studio to give away, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. 877 for a copy of White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Daniel, there's so much in this book. Uh, obviously, the, 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 the specific conversations about um, these nine, I'll call them practices. That's, that's your word. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not really, you know, I'm not even, even going to say it's uh, nine chapters. It's nine practices that we're encouraged to engage in. One of the things that I really appreciate, though, is how you connect each one of these practices to examples from your own journey, like, right, the mm-hmm. way that God moved you um, mm-hmm. and and the way that you um, share your experiences with, um, with, you know, friends who are people of color, colleagues who are people of color, um, who you allowed, you allowed them to help you understand yourself mm-hmm. and the reality of, of white supremacy more fully. Talk a little bit about that and maybe, maybe particularly um, how God used Isaiah 58 in that journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, thank you, Carmen. I guess probably a couple of different things in there. For one, like most things in the racial awakening journey, I don't think we should think of them in isolation. We should follow the kind of general trends of how Christian living and Christian transformation work in general. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a number of themes that are just very core to my Christian walk in general that are core to this. You know, one of them would be, um, you know, one of the motifs that's most common in the New Testament, one that I resonate deeply with, is this notion that one of the ways to think of transformation is to move from blindness to sight. Right. Um, how mm-hmm. often we see Jesus heal, literally healing somebody blind. But you think of Nicodemus in John chapter three, you know, when Jesus says no one can be born again unless they see the kingdom of God. This idea that seeing Jesus in his kingdom fully requires a Holy Spirit led transformation. So if you can kind of 
aligned with that, then you kind of ask, well, how does how does Jesus tend to reveal things that you don't see? Certainly the Holy Spirit is the primary catalyst of that. But I would argue that it's in community where we tend to most often see that which we don't see. Like that's part of the it's part of the human condition is there's just a lot about yourself that you don't know. Right. And some of that's positive. There's always good things about you that you don't know, that you need community to help you see. Then some of it is blind spots, right? There are these things that hold you back from the fullness of life in Christ that you're meant for that you can't see outside the community. And so um, I would argue like this is one of the biggest dangers of being in racial homogenous spaces is, you know, when there's, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with being in an all white church. Um, but when you're in an all white space, it's almost part of the design that there's going to be a lot of things you don't see about how race works because they're going to be these kind of shared cultural blind spots. And so communities play just an enormous role for me in just not only seeing God in a more robust way, which is the most important part of all, but seeing ways in which this system of race has really prohibited me from seeing a lot of what's happening in the world. And I just don't think there's any way I could have seen it outside of the expression of authentic biblical community. Yeah, we, we need one another. I will admit that I feel like um, many of my black and brown friends are exhausted by this conversation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we as white Christians, like, you know, we're just now digging up these roots. We're just now tilling this soil. We're just now figuring right. out how to plant new stuff. And they are like, you know, they're exhausted. How do you yes. in your own relationships positively move forward um, while still doing the hard work that, you know, needs to be done as a white Christian in this generation. Yeah, I agree with you, Carmen. And uh, there's probably no subject matter I've asked my friends more about than that of when is it right to ask you about this? When is it right to give you space? You know, when do I need to do my own work? When do I need to be relying on others? Um, in a lot of ways, that's the delineation between white awake and white lies. Like white awake is really designed more for the white Christian who's on the earlier end of this and I'd say that is a big part of this. Like, if you're not if you're not actually convinced yet that race is a problem, that white supremacy is real, that we need to be joining Jesus in the confrontation of it, I actually don't think we should be burdening our friends of color with that. Like, that's that's one of the most consistent threads I've heard from my Christian friends of color is if you're coming to me to convince you that racism mm. is real, um, mm. not only not only do I not have the energy for that, but what you don't realize is you're actually calling my own experience into question. Right. That's where the fatigue really gets magnified is when you say, ah, is, is, there, is there really unequal treatment, you know, you know, whether it would be in policing or in representation within the incarceration system or the business world? Does this really happen or these things? When you say things like that, we don't mean it this way. But what we're actually suggesting is, is your testimony valid? Right? Because um, th that's what our friends have tried to share with us is even their own personal experiences. So when we look to our friends of color to convince us that the system of race and the racism comes from it is real. Um, it's, it's really dishonoring to people and it's not necessary. There are so many resources out there that can walk us on that journey without us having to burden somebody. Um, so that, that, to me, that would be kind of a first pass delineation is if you're on the side still, which I'm, I don't mean to shame somebody. I mean, I think that's the whole reason I wrote wide awake is because there's all these defense mechanisms that get triggered when we try to understand the reality of it. But I'd say if we're still on the side of trying to figure out if it's real or not, we should really never. I would go so far as that we should never bring that conversation to our friends of color. I think we don't bring this conversation to our friends of color until we're serious about participating in this. And then we need their help to see what we don't see along the way. All right. For those of you who um, are wondering um, what Daniel and I are talking about, see, we, we <laughs> would argue that you need to like go watch Phil Vischer's, you know, a veggie tales fame, um, Phil Vischer's introduction to this conversation mm -hmm. um, is really good. 
that's the place mm-hmm. where if you've never encountered or you've never taken the time to explore the history and the questions, maybe you need to start with a with a with a white on white conversation about the history, because right. what Daniel is pointing out is that this is it's fatiguing and it's dishonoring to our black and brown friends when we we ask them, hey, is 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 is, is it really real what the people are talking about? What you know, these concerns that people are raising is really real. It's obviously really real. So for us to um, for us to be uh, approaching them with those kinds of questions is is genuinely dishon- dishonoring. So white lies builds on white awake. But if you're ready for white lies, we've got some copies available. You can text the word book to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Daniel, I'm going to give you the uh, the last minute walk off. <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I, it, it sounds so basic, but I just don't think it's um, sh- shared as much as it should be in Christian circles. We do this because it matters to Jesus. Uh, a lot of us have been trained to think of this as something outside of the scope of Christianity. That's some kind of a social or political issue. It's not. It's a attack on God's precious daughters and sons. And because of that, because I think Jesus cares deeply about it, we must care deeply about it as well. That's Daniel Hill. The book is White Lies. Thank you so much, my brother. Thank you, Carmen. It's a joy to be with you. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. All right, we, um, we are out of time for today, but let me encourage you to connect with us online at MyFaithRadio.com. Lots of resources always available uh, for you there. You can always communicate with me via email, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. For, um, for those of you who have been the uh, vocabulary and grammar police today, thank you so much. The words uh, that you were looking for were tautological, T-A-U-T is how that starts, syncretism that one starts with an s y c r um and let's see one more apparently i talked about um uh laws being concretized well okay and and uh you guys are correcting me and saying laws are codified yes laws are codified what i was talking about was the idea being made real by being concretized so the way that something becomes concrete is uh is that process so anyway there you go words of the day something to stimulate the brain all right Go out there. Be good. Be godly. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.